Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's time for another Beeson Podcast, and my friend Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and I are here to introduce you to a sermon by really one of the great, young, outstanding preachers I know, Dr. Brian Gunn. Let me tell you a little bit about Brian. He is the Vice President of Finance and the Chief Financial Officer of the Florida Baptist Children's Home. Before that, he was on the staff of Shades Mountain Baptist Church, my home church right here in Alabama and Birmingham. And I heard him preach the sermon we're going to hear, Dr. Smith, from the book of Micah. It was right before July the 4th, and Mm -hmm. it was a prophetic word Mm -hmm. to our entire congregation. Uh, You can tell from the sermon, Brian Gunn has a background in law. He was a lawyer as well as a a CPA before uh, becoming a pastor and a minister. So he brings together these various disciplines into the exposition of God's word. Yeah, Dean George, you you have hit the um, nail right on the head in terms of this prophetic voice that transcends patriotism, mm. uh, that we are governed more by the Word of God uh, than we are the First Amendment. Uh, he wants to put what God says over uh, any uh, patriotic bias that we have. Uh, it It fits him. Um, he is a lawyer, so this is a courtroom scene, and he takes and uses the courtroom scene in the text in order for the court uh, of God, so to speak, to speak to us where God is judge and jury, etc., and even closes the sermon by allowing, as you know, uh, various things like the rivers, the mountains, to be personified and testifying that God is who he is. Yeah. His great text is Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? But he takes this text and he places it within the context of this chapter. That's what makes it a powerful uh, word from God for us today. And I love his use of uh, the original languages and the original and the words, for instance, as he says, God says, I have not overburdened you, but I've unburdened you to speak to the hearts of people to let them know that I've given you another chance. And I want you the three things, justice, mercy, Walking only with God. Dr. Brian Gunn is a D-Men graduate of Beeson Divinity School. He's a member of our Alumni Advisory Council. And now we're going to go to the sanctuary of Shades Mountain Baptist Church here in Birmingham and hear this message from Micah chapter 6 by Dr. Brian Gunn. The older I grow, the more I understand that in election years I learn less and less about candidates, but I learn more and more about a nation. While candidates seek perhaps to hide who they are, a nation wears its heart and its mind out on its sleeve. How is a nation to react to such a great sacrifice? How are a people to react? How are they to live in light of what God has given? This morning, I'd like to take a look at a passage where God essentially takes his people to trial. 
A nation on trial. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you'll take your Bibles and turn there. The ending of this text is one that we're familiar with. If you go to the Library of Congress and look at the religion alcove there, you'll see that Micah chapter 6, verse 8 is actually on the wall. But there's seven verses in front of that that set the tempo for why God says what he says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So let's read Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Baor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? A nation on trial. The text says that God has an indictment against his people. And we set this this scene in a courtroom, but the courtroom is creation. God's courtroom here in this text is creation. The very beginning of it tells us that God is saying to hear what he says, and then Micah essentially stands up as God's counselor and pleads his case. And he calls out to the the very lowest of the earth, the foundations that the seas and the mountains sit upon. And he calls upon the hills and then he calls upon the mountaintops. And he says, I want all of you to come around and hear the case because I am going to plead God's case in front of you. You have been here all along. And I'm going to ask you to be both the judge and the jury. You're going to make a decision in this broken covenant between God and his people. Is it God that is at fault for the broken covenant or is it his people? And God shows up and calls all of the majesty of his creation who has been here all along to see that ongoing relationship between him and his people. Because you see, the relationship that God has with his people is not some sort of an ethereal little Ouija board experience. It was physical. It was tangible. He punched into a timeline and said, I will walk with you. I will perform natural and supernatural acts to protect you. And these mountains and these hills and these foundations need to hear my case. So in verse 2, Micah calls and says to the mountains, 
The Lord has an indictment. He has a complaint. The Lord is not happy. And he believes that the covenant relationship between he and his people has been breached. And that's the second thing. The second thing that God does inside of this courtroom is he complains about a breach of covenant. And he does so in an an interesting way. He does so initially in verse 3 by proclaiming his own innocence. He says, look, right out of the blocks, I'm telling you that the covenant is broken. It ain't my fault. Look at verse 3 again. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? What is it that I have done to break the covenant? Then he asks them, give me some evidence. The covenant is broken, no doubt. What have I done to you? Provide some evidence. I am innocent. Now is the time for you, O Israel, to tell me what it is I have done that has caused you to break the covenant. And obviously there's no noise from Israel. Then he does two things. In verse 4, he presents evidence of his deliverance. Look at what he says. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I brought you up. Earlier he says, what have I done to you? In essence, in the original text, it's saying, how have I overburdened you? But here, if you read the text, and a Hebrew would have read this and saw that God was playing a a little word game, he was saying, I've not overburdened you. In fact, I've unburdened you. I got you up out of the land of Egypt. And then when it came time to cross over the river Jordan, and then when it came time to protect you from enemies, I did that. So in verses 4 and 5, God simply says, I delivered you and I protected you. This is his argument. The covenant is broken. And I'm not the one who broke it. And if you have evidence that I broke it, now's the time to speak up. But in fact, what I do is I present evidence that I have both delivered you and I still to this day continue to protect you. And how does Israel respond to this? I'll tell you how they respond. Israel makes an offer of restitution. Now, what's restitution? Restitution essentially says they didn't even bother to put up a defense. There's no word of them coming forward and saying, God, you've got it wrong. We did everything that you asked of us. And you're wrong. They just said, you know what? We're caught. And so what do they do? They make an offer of restitution. They basically say this. We got some sacrifices we'll bring you. We'll make some offerings. And in verses 6 and 7, they essentially say, what is it you want us to do, God? How do you want us to come to you? What do you want us to bring to you? In essence, they say, you know what? We did break it. Can't we just pay a fine and move on with our lives? Every person that reads this text and comments on it says that essentially the children of Israel were trying to buy God off. Have you ever had children? They could be your own children. They could be nieces or nephews. And they continually do something and perhaps something breaks in the house. Something gets torn up. And you hear this, well, I'll pay you for it. Well, here, you can have some of my money. We'll pay you for it. You're like... I don't really want your money. I want you to quit doing that. The whole idea of having restitution out there is to teach you not to do it. And Israel says, okay, God, we know that we're at fault, but we need you to provide us 
with what it is we need to do for you. We need you to provide us with what you want the offerings to be. They offer restitution. They don't offer to fix the situation. They just say, how do we pay you? Point number four is this. God flat out rejects Israel's offer. Just rejects it at the beginning of verse 8. Why? Because Israel's offer shows a lack of integrity, not a lack of information. Israel's offer shows a lack of integrity, not a lack of information. When they asked the question, how do you want us to come before you? Do you think they didn't know the answer? When they said, what do we bring you? Do you think they didn't know the answer? In fact, not only did they know the answers to those questions, they knew they shouldn't have even been asking those questions because God rejects their offer out of hand as being false. He knew what they wanted to do. Here's what the children of Israel wanted to do. God, we want to keep doing what we're doing and we'll just pay the fine. We're going to keep driving over the speed limit because I can afford to make the payments. I'm going to keep breaking things that aren't mine because I can afford to pay for them. We basically want to live our life the way that we want to live it and we'll just pay restitution to you for the damages that we cause. And God says, I reject that offer. Why? Because God was never looking for restitution in the first place. God's remedy is specific performance. And the lawyers in the house know what I'm talking about. There are those handful of times where restitution won't cut it. You break a contract and you can't just pay money and walk away. There are those specific instances where a court will step in and say, no, you will do what you promised to do. And God says, I don't want your money. I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to do what I told you to do. And what is it that I require of you? Simple. And we come to those those great words in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 where God says, what I want is for you to do justice. I want you to love mercy. And I want you to walk humbly with your God. That's what God was requiring of the children of Israel in Micah chapter 6. And I would say to you, it's what he requires of you and I today. What do those three things mean really? What does it mean to do justice? The original language really means accomplish the right thing. Now, today, here's how we like to accomplish justice. We see justice as the justice system. It's a third party. We pay taxes and people hire lawyers and we elect judges or we appoint judges and we call people to jury duty. And justice is this third party system over here where we execute judgment on those who've done the wrong thing. That's not a fair reading of this text at all. This text is saying to a people and it is saying to individuals, I expect you 24-7 to conduct your life in a way that is righteous. I expect you to do the right thing all of the time. And if you would do the right thing all of the time, you could take your third-party justice system and ship it up the creek because you wouldn't need it anymore. What would happen to the federal code If all of a sudden, everybody in the United States just decided, we're not going to lie anymore. 
How many volumes could we throw away? God says, I told you that when I first got you out of Egypt. How many volumes of the federal code could we throw away if people just didn't steal from one another anymore? God says, you don't do justice and that's what I want. I'm not going to allow you to do the wrong thing and think that you can just pay me off and I'm going to walk away and leave you alone. You must do justice. And justice is the right thing as God sees it. Do you know that if there is someone in need, the character of God says justice is to help them. That's the character of God. Do justice. Do it in your daily life. The second thing he says is, I expect you to love kindness or love mercy. And that word love there really means that you have a close bond with it. I love mercy and kindness. Not that I'm forced to do it. You know, some of us, I'm forced. You know, I, I don't really want to show mercy but I've, but I've got to because somebody from the church could be here in the restaurant and see me. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act correctly. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the speed limit, but oh, it's only because, you know, every fifth day or so over here on, on Vestaview, they got a cop sitting there. No, that's not what God's talking about. He's talking about doing justice and loving mercy. That it's a part of our character. Now, here's, here's my character. I think it might be yours. I want justice for you and mercy for me. That's what I want. Well, good. I'll take by your laughter that that's an, a unanimous vote. That's how I am. I want you to do the right thing all the time. But I get a little bit of skating room here. And God says, I want you to be so in love with kindness and mercy because it's a part of my character that when you see someone break the code of justice, your initial reaction is one of mercy. It's one of kindness. Why? Because it was my reaction to you. I tell you where you deserved to be, Israel. You deserved to be making bricks and building pyramids. But I heard your cry and my heart broke for you and I came and I got you. What you deserved was not just to wander out in the wilderness for 40 years after all those stunts you pulled with me. What you deserved was for the whole lot of you to die out there in the wilderness. But I didn't do that. What you and I deserve today is to spend an eternity away from God. But God the Son said, no, I'll go. That's what we deserve. That's justice. But God says, oh, but in my character, I love mercy. And his mercy was poured out on you and I. That's how you and I ought to look at other people. That's how well we ought to be like the character of God. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it fits so well. It's so convicting to me. There was a man who stood in this pulpit who was on staff with us who has spent the last few years in lands that I can't tell you where he was and can't tell you what he was doing. But I remember him the day that he left. He stood here and he told the story about why God was calling him off to see these people come to know Christ because one time he was backpacking 
And he met a man who didn't even know the name of Jesus Christ. And as he stood here, his heart broke and tears began to flow. And he says, I couldn't stand it that these people didn't know about Christ. And I knew this guy fairly well, but by no means was a close friend. And I sat over here where I normally sit. My eyes welled up and I got the lump in my throat and I began to cry. Why? Because I cared about those people? No, I knew him. And what broke his heart broke my heart. And you know what God said to me? He said, Brian, when will the day come that you know me well enough that what breaks my heart breaks your heart? You know him better than that. God says, what I want from you is to do the right thing. Just do the right thing. And when you fail and people fail, I hope that your character is such that the initial reaction to a fallen friend is mercy and kindness and love. But I have a third item for you. I expect you to walk humbly with your God. Now the word humbly there... doesn't really mean humbly the way you and I think about the word humbly. It really means to walk wisely, to walk circumspectly, to walk in a way that you ought to walk with a holy God. God says, I expect your character to do justice. I expect you to love mercy and I expect you to walk with me in a manner that's worthy of being in the presence of God. Now God says this to them, but he says, I've told you this before. He said, I told you this many times before. Sometime today, take your Bibles and read in Amos chapter 5, where God says, you know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of your sacrifices. They're a stench in my nostrils. What I want is I want justice. I want justice to roll on like an ever-flowing stream. He says in Zechariah chapter 7, I'm tired of your sacrifices. They don't mean anything. This is what I want you to do. I want you to render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. God says that's what I ask of you. To walk circumspectly with your God. Well, that's good for Old Testament, isn't it? That's good for when the religious group and the national group were one and the other. But Brian, we're in an election year and the Christian group and the national group are two different groups. So I'm not really sure that it applies. Au contraire. Matthew chapter 23. Verses 23 and 24 fall in the midst of Jesus pronouncing woes unto the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I'm not sure if you remember much about Jesus' time, but God's children at that particular time were being taken over by the Romans. Completely different civil government. And what is it that Jesus has to say? He says this, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are they? Well, look at that. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
There still are sacrifices to be done. There still are rituals to be carried out because you're physical beings. But you guys, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You're a blind guide. Did you notice that when every time Jesus comes into contact with religious people, he tends to light them up like a blowtorch. And when he finds decrepit old sinners, his heart tends to break. When he looks at you and I, he tends to get a little bit angry with how we've reacted to the great sacrifice that he's made. And yet when he looks at the people that you and I pass judgment on without mercy and kindness, his heart breaks. The city that would put him to death, Jerusalem, shortly before he enters, it says that he looked at them and his heart broke and he had compassion on them. You think he didn't know they were all going to put him to death? Of course they did. He did. But his heart still broke for them. Jesus looked at the scribes and the Pharisees and he says, you are blind guides. You have tried to buy God off with your ties of mint and dill and cumin. And you thought you could just do whatever you want. But what you need to do are the weightier matters of the law. Justice. Sound familiar? Mercy. And faithfulness. Walking faithfully with your God. How do we do that? (laughs) I, I, I don't know. It's a daily walk for you and I to balance those things out. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 18 about an unforgiving servant who owed 20 years wages to his master. And the master called him in front of him and said, you know what, it's time to pay up. And the guy says, I can't pay it up, I need more time to pay it off. And, and the master said, you don't get any more time to pay it off. In fact, I'm throwing you in jail. I'm going to sell your family. We're done. And the man threw himself at the mercy of the master. And the master's heart was so moved that he said, I'll tell you what. You don't even get extra time. I just wipe the debt clean. Just wipe it clean. It's gone. And the man leaves and he goes and he finds another man who owed him about a hundred days wages. 20 years wages he's been forgiven of. This guy owes him about a hundred. He finds the man. He has no mercy on him. Has him thrown in jail and is going to have his children and his family sold. And the master hears about it, brings him back in, throws him into jail and says, you know what? The way you treated other people, that's the way I'm going to treat you. That's how you and I are to balance justice and mercy. It's how you and I are to walk Humbly with our God. And the Roman government is gone. But the cause of Jesus Christ goes on. The Greeks are gone. The Assyrians are gone. Everybody's gone. And today, in the freest land that the world has ever seen, I believe you and I will have to answer before the mountains and before the oceans and before the foundations. And I'm not sure that we'll fare much better. There's a lot of talk in an election year. There's a lot of information, but a scarce amount of intelligence. How will you answer when you stand before the mountains? You see the mountains... And the rivers 
When they were there, I don't think they were just judges and juries. I think they were witnesses because I think the Nile River could have stood up and testified and said, let me tell you about the day I ran blood red. The Red Sea could have testified, let me tell you about the day that the children of Israel walked across a dry bed. And let me tell you about the bones and the flesh of the Egyptian army that I swallowed up. Let the mountains testify about the pillar of fire. Let them testify about the cloud. Let the ground talk about how manna showed up on the ground and how quail would be there. Let the rock that was spoken to and the rock that was struck testify how out of an inanimate object flowed water. Let the Jordan River testify about how it backed up and people went through. Let the stones that were gathered on the bottom of the Jordan put in place testify against them. What will the mountains and the rivers and the valleys say about us? You know what they might talk about? They might talk about the richest nation on the earth. They might talk about protection and blessing. They might talk about the greatest opportunity ever to see the cause of Christ move forward. But I'm afraid that the verdict will sound eerily similar. You paid a lot of tithes. And you played a lot of games. But where did you do justice? Where did you love mercy? And how have you walked uprightly with your God? Do you have a worship guide with you? Look at the very back of the worship guide, top. It says it's our mission. What is our mission? To glorify God, how do we do that? Well, we reach people with what? His truth. That's his justice. But do we stop there? No. We reach him, we reach them with his love, his mercy, his ever kindness. And we want to help them become what? Fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We want to show them God's justice. We want to show them God's love. We want to help them walk humbly with their God. And we have the greatest opportunity to do it. But today I would tell you that the President of the United States, United States Senators, United States Congressmen will not sit as judge and jury over God's people. God will call this creation and we will all stand accountable to Him. There's a lot of whining and complaining about this country. And much of it is, is true. But ladies and gentlemen, if you need a First Amendment to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are among all Christians most lame. Because we're the first ones to get it. And 2,000 years before us, they've done just fine. Because Paul says... I am not ashamed of the First Amendment of the United States of America, for it is the power of God to set men free. Fooey on the First Amendment. Fooey on the Second Amendment. This is the Word of God. And on Tuesday night, PBS, a real conservative organization, is going to talk on Frontline about how Christianity is beginning to sweep through China. Gee, aren't we oppressive compared to China? 
No special about how Christianity is moving through the United States of America. In fact, at the Southern Baptist Convention, we're lamenting the fact that we can't even baptize what we baptized last year. I would say to you that the verdict on us will be if we act justly, if we love mercy, and if we walk humbly with our God, no government, I don't care who the president is, I don't care who the mayor is, I don't care who any elected official is, no one can stand in the way of the cause of Christ. Why? Because this word says not even the gates of hell can contend against us. So if we fail to see the gospel of Jesus Christ sweep this country and sweep this land, this is where I fear we stand. Micah chapter 6. I've seen all your religious games and I'm tired of them. When will you just do what I asked you to do? When will you just do justice? When will your heart break and love mercy? When? Will you just walk humbly with your God? We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Way too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul. My very soul. It demands my life. And it demands my all. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.